Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you to our service. We're uh, going to be doing things a little bit differently this weekend. If I uh, usually attend, you know that we're uh, working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to continue to do that today. Um, but we're going to do a little bit of a, I'm calling it kind of a good sermon, bad sermon this weekend. Uh, you kind of pick up on that in a few minutes. I want to take a, a few minutes to talk about the beginning of our passage. So instead of having to live, listen to one horrendously long message, you know, um, you're kind for not laughing at that. But uh, we're going to kind of just break it up a little bit. And I'm going to take a few minutes and do the good sermon part. And then uh, we're going to worship a little bit more and release the kids for Kids Church. And that's kind of the other thing I want to uh, make you aware of. Uh, the first part of the sermon, if you look at your notes, you'll see uh, we're in the first couple of verses of chapter 5. Uh, great topic, good uh, for us to think about. But the second part that we're going to talk about, I'm going to call it more like a, maybe a PG-13 message. And so if you don't typically send your kids into kids' church, um, you might want to think about that. Just look at the notes and you can see the six things that we're going to talk about. And if you don't want to talk about those things with your grade schoolers at lunch today, then you might want to send them across the way. On the other hand, we found out last night that more parents than usual kept their kids in, so I'm sure they had a fun evening. So uh, anyways, we're talking a little bit about love today, and uh, back when I was in uh, college, in fact, my, my junior year of college, um, there was this girl on campus, and I really wanted to ask her out on a date, but I was a theology major, and so theology majors have this rule of thumb, you always pray three months before you ask a girl out, and... Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I just was, uh, I was probably afraid of rejection more than anything else. So um, it was the end of my junior year and I decided I was going to take the whole summer and pray about asking this girl out. And then when school started again in the fall, you know, I could do that. And so I did. I prayed during the summer and school started and I asked her out on a date. We went, we went out a couple times and, and uh, she said, you know, I don't really think this is working out. And uh, so we didn't, we didn't date again until the end of my senior year. And we started dating again. She finally saw the light, and the prayers kicked in, and everything was really good. But I can remember, and I dated before, but there was something about, um, about this girl and about this relationship that for me was really different, because I found myself having thoughts about her that were different than thoughts I'd usually had about girls. And that was, I found myself really, really desirous to love this girl in a way that would just completely spiritually bless her. I mean, I just remember thinking if, you know, when she gets to the end of her life, I would love for her to be able to say, man, that guy spiritually blessed me and loved me in a Christ-like way like no one else ever had. That was a desire of my heart, um, to honor her, uh, to respect her. We got married, uh, we had three kids, and I found myself again with each one of my kids when they were born having those same thoughts over again, just feeling so blessed by God to be entrusted with a child and thinking, I want to be the greatest father that this child could ever have. I want to love this child in a way that will just completely change the course of their life. And when they think about, you know, what's it like to be loved like Christ, they would think of their dad. Unfortunately, I'd have to just admit that I've failed. Uh, I've often failed to live up to those, that desire and those expectations over the years. Um, I think sometimes I failed because I just lacked the skill to love. I think sometimes I failed my wife and failed my kids because of sin. Sometimes because I've lacked knowledge. Sometimes because of sin. Sometimes just character issues. And sometimes because of sin, you know. Uh, sometimes I've been selfish and, oh yeah, that's sin. So, you know, I haven't really lived up to my desire to, live, uh, to love them the way I'd hoped. But when we come to chapter 5 of Ephesians, what we find is this passage that, that gives us some good news if we really truly want to love the people around us. Paul says this, Now be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in love, 
Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul says, I want you to walk in love. Now, this is not the first time that Paul's used that phrase, walk in something. He says, I want you to walk in love. Some of your translations say, live a life of love. I love the translation, walk in love, because it gives you that kind of realistic choosing to love as a person by person, moment by moment, step by step thing, isn't it? It's not like, boom, one day you arrive and you just love everyone all the time. It's kind of a decision by decision, choice by choice. But you know as well as I do that loving people can be difficult. There are just some people that it's tough to love them. Maybe there's certain situations when you're under stress where it's tough to love them or just your limitations and your, your sinful habits. So how do we do that? How do we get to a place where we can truly supernaturally love the people around us? Well, Paul tells us here, he says, first of all, you have to understand your dearly loved children. This is where it starts. This is the foundation of really truly being able to love other people. When God fills us with his love, when God fills us with his grace, he gives us more than we need. And that becomes the foundation from which we can really truly begin to love our mate, our kids, our friends, our enemies, everyone around us. That's what gives us the ability to love, is that foundation of being loved. And so we've said many times in this series that we are loved. We don't have to work for God's love. We don't have to go through a ritual for God's love. We don't have to earn it. We just are. So Paul says, you are loved. So just be loved. And by the way, be loved with the people around you. Now, because we are loved, he says that we can do something interesting. He says we can be imitators of God. Now, that word uh, in the Greek, mimetes, is uh, the word that we get uh, the English word mimic from or imitate. And so what he's simply saying here is God has given us the example to not just know what love is, not just study what love is, and not just memorize some passages on love, but to actually imitate the love of God with people around us. And he gives us an example. And that example is Jesus Christ. What does it mean to love people? It means to love them just like Christ loved us. Now I say that because there's a lot of false definitions of love out there today that we hear. Some people will say, well, love is a feeling, and when you feel it, you feel that tingly feeling, right? Or whatever it is for you, then, then you know that's love. And if it goes away, then guess what? It's not love anymore. That's what love is. Some people say love is purely biological. It's, it's purely physical, and there's nothing more to it. Some people say love is kind of a reciprocal thing. You, if, if you give 50% to me and I give 50% to you, then we love. And, and, and if you back off 10%, then I don't have to love you anymore. It's kind of a, a contract thing. Some people think love is just casual. It comes and it goes and, and it's okay. It's the way it should be. In fact, what he tells us here is, here's the real definition of love. It says that Christ gave himself. That word give is the, the best definition we'll ever find of love. Love is giving. It says Christ gave himself to us. He, he gave himself to us through humility. We've talked about out in this book how, how he chose to come down from heaven and to exist among us, to, to live like us in a body like ours. What was he doing? He was giving of himself. It says that he gave to us through compassion. He gave to us through his words and his, and his time. And ultimately, he gave his very life for us on the cross. That is the definition of love. When God gave his life for us. So why would we do that? Why would we choose to purposely sacrifice our lives and our wants and our needs for other people? Well, in Romans it tells us this. The love of God, notice this. In fact, would you read this with me? The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Why would we love other people? Why would we give of ourselves? Well, number one, because we are loved by God. 
Uh, because we are now secure in Christ. Because we know that God wants to love other people through us. And here's one of the reasons we would love other people is because now we can. Before we couldn't, but now God has given us a brand new nature. And by the way, it's that new nature that has completely changed us and allowing us to live a life of love. That's why we're here today. We're here this morning because God has loved us and now we are able to love him. Because God has loved us, we're able to reach out and love one another. That's why we're here today, because we are loved by God and because we deeply desire in our new nature to reach out and express that love to God. We call that worship. We worship God. We love God. That's why we're here. We're going to take a few more minutes to do that, to worship together. Father God, I just pray this morning as we read from your word, as we let it sink down deep into our hearts, that you will again remind us how great and how deep and how wonderful and wide the love that you have for us is. And now, Father, we want to reach up to you and express to you how much we love you, how much you mean to us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children say, amen. So in the, uh, in the first couple of verses here, and we've looked at this morning, Paul's talked about uh, love and um, his desire that we be loving people. And of course, this is nothing new. We've talked about, a lot about this in the, in the book of Ephesians. But um, Paul's going to narrow in in an interesting way on some, um, some very specific enemies of love that we'd like to talk about in the remainder of our time together this morning. And uh, he's going to start off in verse 3, giving us a, a list of several things to think about. He says, now, but among you there must not even be a hint. And he gives us a couple things off the top of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed. So Paul begins this discussion of love and, and gets kind of specific about the way that we pursue our sexuality uh, as uh, men and women in God's family. And sometimes we, we get a little uncomfortable when we say the S word in the church, sexuality, sex, or a derivative thereof. But you might want to get over that this morning because we're going to talk about it a little bit. And it should be okay because the truth is that God is the one who made us male and female. It was his design. It was his idea. Quite frankly, I'm glad that he did. I think that it's a good thing. Um, and there is a purpose for sex within marriage between a man and a woman, we understand. First of all, it's about procreation, and it's about having children, but it's, it's even more than that. It's about helping a couple, a husband and a wife, uh, unify in several ways. Physically, obviously that's part of, uh, of sex within marriage. Emotionally, um, it does something for a couple that nothing else does. Spiritually, uh, Paul goes on to talk a little bit later about how there's some spiritual aspect to unity between a husband and wife that happens um, in, in, through the act of sex that uh, is difficult to understand, but there's, there's wonder, there's pleasure, there's joy within that. Now, of course, the problem is that whatever God creates, Satan loves uh, to counterfeit. And obviously, we understand how that works when it comes to sex. Within marriage, sex is like super glue, if you will, that can really help join a couple together. But the problem is that outside of marriage, it becomes more like dynamite, if you will, in, instead of glue. And we all have lived long enough to probably see how that's played out. We know people who uh, played around with sex uh, outside of the context of marriage, and it became like physically damaging to them, certainly. Um, for some people, it becomes emotionally 
damaging. They carry those, those hurts with them the rest of their life. And certainly, there's an aspect in which we are physically damaged as well. Now, this book was written 2,000 years ago to a group of believers, a church in Ephesus. And a lot of times when we think about life 2,000 years ago, we think, well, you know, could they really have had much of a problem back then? But if you've done your history homework, you'd know um, that, in fact, they had. About a year and a half ago, I got to read a new biography that come, uh, had come out on Augustus Caesar. And it was an eye-opening book for me because uh, I realized I had kind of a romantic view of life in the Roman Empire about 2,000 years ago. Um, for instance, prostitution in those days in a place like Ephesus wasn't just accepted, it was expected. It was expected that most young men, that their first sexual experience would be with a prostitute, not with their wife. Premarital sex was something that was rampant. Uh, we think that's just for today. It's been around for a long time. Extramarital sex was really an interesting thing. In fact, a lot of times men would enter in, in that day, uh, into a marriage contract with their wife in which they would write in the contract that they had the right to extramarital sex. And we're told that sometimes wives even preferred it that way. Um, we know that homosexuality was a, a problem back then. That uh, sex between adults and children was practiced back then. Um, they had a local religion that we've talked about uh, where you didn't go to see a priest at, a, at a, worship, a place of worship. You went to see a priestess. And guys loved to go to uh, those churches back then. Um, there, one of the things that probably really shocked me the most was the vocabulary back then, because I think we have a pretty dirty, smutty vocabulary out there today. Um, but you know what? It was almost worse back then. Um, their art was full of uh, explicit sexual imagery. The theater back then was sex-saturated. And so this, this is a message that the people in Ephesus really needed to hear. So I kind of wondered, you know, do we still need that message today? Do we need to be concerned about sexual immorality today? So a lot of times when I'm studying for a sermon, I'll do a lot of research online. And, you know, it just did not seem like a wise thing this week to Google sexual immorality. So I didn't. Um, didn't do that. So I can't speak with facts and figures right now. But let me just, I'll just ask you some questions and you can just think about whether or not we have a problem today. Like, do you think uh, our vocabulary is loaded with uh, obscene sexual references today. Anyone think that's a problem? In our, so I kind of think it is. I, maybe it's just me. Um, last night, uh, I got to spend the evening uh, at the uh, emergency room at um, Southwest Washington Medical Center. My oldest son had fractured his arm, and so I was waiting in the waiting room, and um, I just preached a sermon, so I was kind of sitting there waiting and bored and listening to the people around me, and I, I maybe just because I was preaching this, I'm like, man, you know, th there's just a lot of dirty, filthy language in our society today. Um, how about the internet? Anyone think that the internet might have a problem today? Anyone? Can you think of any reason why we might think that there's a problem on the internet today? Um, yeah, very dangerous place to go. Number one uh, business on the internet right now that drives it, of course, you know, is pornography. Um, do you think that, that ads today like to use sexual images and innuendo to sell product? Anybody think maybe that's a no? Okay. Uh, apparently I'm watching different things than you. Uh, TVs and movies depict sex outside of marriage. Think that happens today? Uh, how about do TV shows like to use sexually, uh, sexually charged topics to get a laugh? 
Like, can they get a laugh about anything else anymore? Uh, does the music today, popular music, contain sexually explicit words and themes? And you know, I don't know, but maybe it does. Maybe it's a problem. Notice what Paul says here, and, and I love what he says here. But among you, he says, there must not even be a what? A hint, all right? So here's the deal. We like to go, well, it's all around us, and there's lots of it, and that's just the way it is. And Paul comes along and goes, no, it's not just the way it is. No, I know it's easy to go, well, the world's this deep in smut right now. So as Christians, we're only this deep, so we're doing okay. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not the standard. You got to understand. So Paul gives us a list of six things to be aware of when it comes to love. Things that will kill love. And the first one, he says, is sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word there for immorality is the Greek word pornea. And uh, I've kind of given you some Greek words today so as to make you think like this is really deep and, and all that stuff. And you can go memorize those words. Pornea is a Greek word. Probably sounds familiar to you in some ways. It literally means sex outside of marriage. Sometimes it's a ref- uh, reference to illicit sexual behavior. Illicit meaning against the law. Sometimes against the law of, of the land. Sometimes against the law of God. Now, God actually has, believe it or not, a design for sex. He thought of it, he created it, he made it, and he said it was good. But it's designed to be between a man and a woman who are married to each other. It's just that simple. So, pornea includes things like premarital sex. It includes things like extramarital sex. It includes prostitution. It includes inappropriate physical contact with the opposite gender. I said gender because I've said sex too many times already this morning. Uh, It includes pornography. It includes homosexuality. Pornea really is the opposite of love. It's just that simple because love is giving and pornea is taking. It's just that simple. It, It takes. It likes to take of the purity of another person. Pornea likes to, likes to take of the dignity, the God-given dignity of the other person's body. Pornea likes to, to, to take of the other person's spirituality. Pornea mocks the Holy Spirit that lives inside of a believer. There's something to think about. Paul says there, there shouldn't even be a hint of this within the church. Love is the opposite. Love protects. It protects the sexual purity of other people. In Hebrews it says this. I love this passage. Honor marriage. And notice it says honor and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. What does love do? Love honors and love guards the sexual purity of the other person. It, lo- it, it honors and it guards their body. It honors and it guards their mind, their purity, their relationship with God. When I was a youth pastor, I used to get this question from kids who were dating. How, how far can we go before we sin, right? Uh, can we go to first base, second base, third base? I kind of have to be honest, the whole base thing is a, a reference that's lost to me. I don't know. I don't know what third base is. Um, I'm not sure. But here's the thing. You don't really need to know because when someone asks that question, you, you know automatically the problem is they're headed for trouble, right? Because they're asking the wrong question. This makes it very clear. When you ask the question, how far can we go before sin? What you're basically saying is, I have a pornea uh, mindset. I want to know how much can I take before God gets really ticked off of me. That's all I want to know. Where's the line? I won't cross the line because I don't want God mad, but I want to take as much as I can. Here's what, here's what the Bible says. Here's a better question to ask. How far am I willing to go to honor this other person's marriage? If they're not married yet, then you're honoring their future marriage. I used to always tell kids this. I used to always say, when you're out on a date with someone and you're wondering, I wonder how far I can go, just 
picture in your mind right now that the person you're going to marry someday is out on a date with, with someone else right now. How far do you want them to go? Don't you want that other person to be protecting the sexual purity of the person you're going to marry someday? Protect, guard the future marriage or the present marriage of that person. Now, I have a daughter and two sons. And as they get older, I find myself more and more protective of their sexual purity. I find it to be something I think about more and more. Now, I'm not naive. I know uh, they live in a dirty smutty world. I know that it's going to be difficult for them. They're going to be exposed to stuff at times. But here's, here, here's the thing. I, my, my basic approach is this. Anyone who's going to help my teenage kids stay sexually pure is a friend of mine. I will take you out for ice cream because you are, you are tops in my book. But on the other hand, anyone who tries to mess with the sexual purity of my daughter, who tries to mess with the sexual purity of my son, I made the comment last night, I don't own a gun, but I had a guy come up afterwards and say, well, my kids are married now, so you can have my gun. Um, so... <clears throat> See, think of it this way. Think of the men and women in your life as sons and daughters of God who have an overly protective father. And when you use and abuse them, when you take from them, the Bible's very clear if you keep reading that God does not ignore that. God does not take that lightly. That is something that God will always deal with. And while we're talking about pornea, I, just, I, I need to take a moment to mention probably the obvious thing uh, the elephant in the room, and that is that you may say, pornea, that sounds like a word I'm familiar with. <clears throat> we, in fact, get the English word pornography from that word pornea, and there's a lot of different definitions of pornography. I would just kind of define it this way, the objectification of another person in order to satisfy my sinful sexual desire. It's, it's the objectification of a person. It's taking away their humanity and their personhood and, and all of that stuff and just making them an object of your lust, of your desire. And before I go on, I just want to apply. If you're visiting here this morning, we don't usually talk about stuff like this. You're like, wow, okay. Um, we don't. But when I was growing up, I, this was something that I had to face as a young man. Growing up as a non-Christian in a non-Christian home. Um, we didn't have pornography in my home, but pretty much everywhere else. My dad used to take me to a barber shop where they would have these tables with just pornographic material just on the table. I had a guy last night say, oh, that's why my dad never took me to the barber shop. I'm like, well, maybe not, you know? But that's it. And, and when we would go there, my dad would always be like, now, you know, you don't look at that stuff. Only, only men look at that stuff, right? You know? And, um, but I was a, you know, I was a non-Christian kid growing up in that environment. And, uh, and then to make things even better, we had a, a couple relatives' homes that we used to go to a lot. And these relatives, they would just have magazine racks with pornography in it, just sitting in the house. You know, it's, really, it's a really interesting world to grow up to when you go to your grandparents' house and there's pornography just sitting out there. And that's part of the world that I grew up in. Now today, granted, it's, it's a lot different, isn't it? Um, you know, you can just uh, turn on your computer now and have access um, to pornography. Uh, the internet, I've, I came across an interesting statistic the other day. I, I don't know if it's how true it is, but there was uh, a group that did research and they said that demographically, the age group that's downloading pornography and viewing it more than any other age group, what would you think that is? 10 to 14. 10 to 14. So if you have, you know, kids in your house, uh, don't be stupid. Be a parent. Be helpful, you know. Pornography. People say, well, at least it's not actual sex, you know? Well, you kind of miss the point. Pornography is part of what Paul's talking about here. Pornography infects your thoughts. 
It will infect the way that you view the opposite sex. It will infect um, what you expect of them. It will infect the way that you relate to them, your marriage, your future marriage. Paul says, don't be dumb. You have to realize it's the opposite of love, pornea, sexual immorality. Paul says there's a second thing, and that is impurity. You also need to be aware of impurity. Akatharsia is the, great, uh, is the Greek word here, and it refers to an impurity of thoughts and motives. So he's kind of moving from the outside to the inside now. It's the word that uh, Jesus uses in Matthew 23 when he says to the religious leaders, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but you're filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of, and there's the word akatharsia in the Greek, uh, impurity. He says, you look good on the outside, but you're full of, of filth on the inside. Now that word is used 11 times in the New Testament. In 10 of those times, it relates to sexual sin. So what he's saying here is this. It, it, you need to control your body, right? So you don't practice pornea. But on the other hand, he says you need to make sure that it, it sinks all the way down into your soul so that you're pure from the inside out. Paul's saying here you need to deal with your impure thoughts, not just your actions. Because again, people say, well, at least it's not in action. At least I'm not actually out there involved in that. But remember that our actions are always directed by our thoughts. Our thoughts and, and what, we, what we think will always view the way we, it, it impacts the way we see people, the way we treat them, the words that we use. Paul says you need to be pure from the inside out. How do we do that, by the way? Because I think that's probably the, the bigger struggle for most, most Christians. Well, I think there's a few things you can do. Number one, you need to be ready to confess those thoughts of sin. Um, that's really important. And the Bible says that if we'll confess our sin to God, if we'll get it out there, it says that, that he'll forgive us and that he'll cleanse us. Another thing we want to do besides confess is we want to ask God for his power to have victory over these things. Uh, another thing that's important to do is to learn to replace with sinful thoughts with, with honorable thoughts. We'll talk about that in just a sec. And, and one of the things we want to do is get accountable. You know, we want to find we may need someone to help us and to pray with us through this stuff. Love seeks to be pure from the inside out. Uh, notice what it says to us in Romans 12. It says, love must be sincere. Sincere means the same on the inside as it is on the outside. How do we do that? Well, we hate what is evil and we cling, both outside and inside, to what is good. And we're devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's a great brotherly, sisterly, family kind of love. And we honor one another above ourselves. He says, you need to beware of sexual immorality because it will kill love within the church. Impurity and greed. And greed's kind of an interesting one because when we think of greed, we usually think of money and stuff. And we think, what does that have to do with this? Now, the word greed uh, literally means the desire to have more than you have. And in this context, it's just the desire to have more than God has given you. And when you think about it, sexual immorality is always about greed, isn't it? It's always about wanting something you don't have it's always about using another person to get something that God hasn't given you. It's all about greedy, selfish desires and self-gratification and self-centeredness. Greed is the opposite of faith. Instead of trusting God to meet my need in a legitimate way, including your sexual needs, you decide to take matters into your own hands and to use other people to get what you must have. One writer put it this way, our sexual greed can see it, seem so convincing to us in our own minds that spouses are forsaken and children are neglected, homes are destroyed, friends are disregarded, as no effort is spared to fulfill the desire to have the one who is lusted after, all in the name of love. But of course, again, love is not taking, love is giving. In Galatians 5.13, Paul writes this, he says, now you have been called to live in freedom. 
Paul's just saying this to the Galatians. He says, you understand that you are saved by grace. You're not saved by works. You're saved as a gift of God. You're saved by grace. You stay saved by grace. So Paul's just saying, you don't have to fulfill the law every day to stay saved, right? You're free now to live in Christ. But notice what he says. He says, not freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. That's not what we mean by freedom. Instead, he says, you're free now. You can just serve one another. You no longer have to be, well, I've got I've to protect myself and, and use other people to get what I want because if I don't, I won't get what I want. He says, no, now you're free because you have a father who's going to look after you, a father who's going to take care of you. So now you can love. And love is, how can I serve you? How can I give to you? How can I bless you? And how can I encourage you spiritually? So Paul says there shouldn't be a hint of sexual immorality, a hint of impurity, a hint of greed. And he says this, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Now, that word obscenity there literally means filthy or, or shameful. And he's talking about words that pollute our thoughts and our hearts. Now, when I became a Christian, um, I was in high school. I uh, grew up in a household where people were encouraged to express themselves and their feelings. And we had a, a rather large vocabulary um, from which to do that. Um, and so when I became a Christian and started going to church, I was a little surprised at first to find that people didn't express themselves sometimes among other believers the way I was raised to express myself. And there were certain words you would use, for instance, when you were angry, that just weren't acceptable to yell out when you were at church. You just didn't do that. And so I started making a list. Oop, you don't say that in church. You don't say that in church. They're, they're obscene. They're dirty words. They're angry words. Uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, not cool in the church. So I learned there was a list. And then I learned that Christians came up with their own list of acceptable sanctified cuss words. And so I began to learn those. Like one of my favorites was uh, the word criminetly. Okay. I don't know what it means. I can't spell it. So every time there's this old guy in church and when he'd get mad, he'd always yell criminetly. And I just, it would just make me laugh because it means nothing to me, you know? And sometimes when I get really angry or something or hit my thumb with a hammer, I'll say criminetly and it just makes me laugh for the most part because I don't think of anything. But then there were other Christian cuss words, you know, uh, gosh. And so that was really controversial, by the way, in my church, gosh, because some people were like, gosh is really um, short for God. And so, um, really, that's, you know, there was the word dang, you know, right? And some people thought that was okay. It's, you know, not like saying the actual thing. And, and here's the thing I've noticed today as I'm becoming very Facebook savvy is that um, I notice what kids like to do today is they don't actually want to use swear phrases because that would just be wrong. So they use swear phrase abbreviations. You know what I'm saying? So when I first went on Facebook, I'd see these abbreviations and go, what in the world is that? And then I'd do a little research and think, oh, wow, well, okay. Now here's the problem with using uh, substitute Christian swear words and abbreviations. The problem is if when you hear the word, the substitute word or the abbreviation, and you automatically think of the word it represents, then guess what? You just, you just swore. You just took the Lord's name in vain or whatever it is. In other words, Paul's saying, this is not, we don't even want a hint of this stuff in our life. I know this stuff is considered technically acceptable in the church. The problem is it really isn't what God has in mind for us. Here in this passage, he's talking about obscene means words and conversations that drag people's thoughts and your thoughts into the gutter. That's what he's talking about. 
So if a slang word, if a Christian substitute swear word draws people's mind into the gutter, then you shouldn't use that. There shouldn't even be a hint of it. Words that make us think impure thoughts, words that cause us to stumble, words that stimulate sinful ideas or dishonor people. Instead, what he says is love talks about things that lift up the thoughts of other people. In Ephesians, in fact, he says this, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Let's face it, when we swear, we're not trying to bless or benefit anyone, are we? We're just being selfish at that point. He says you need to think about other people. That's what love does. No obscenity. I would just really challenge all of us to think about that today. Here's another one he says, no foolish talk. Now, some of your translations will say silly talk, and that's actually also a very good translation. Moralagia is the Greek word. The first part of that is the word moros, that we get the word, the English word moron from. The word means lacking forethought or wisdom. So what he's saying here is conversations that just lack any meaning. Conversations that are just a waste of words. Conversations that are a waste of time or, or just miss an opportunity to bless or encourage another person. So we've gone a long way, haven't we? From don't use obscenity to don't waste an opportunity. It's kind of a, he just takes a great big jump there, doesn't he? And he's like, it's not just about what you don't do. It's about what you want to do. What do you want to do when you talk to your mate? What do you want to do when you talk to your kids? Do you just want to waste words? Do you just want to use up some oxygen? Or do you want to bless them? Now, of course, it takes a lot of work sometimes to say something meaningful as opposed to something meaningless. It means you probably need to know them well enough to know what they need to hear, and you need to know God's word well enough to kind of make that connection and make that bridge. But that's what love does. Love seeks to bless other people with meaningful words. In Philippians 4, he kind of gives us a list of some of those things. Fix your thoughts on what is true. There's a a great thing to talk about is what is true. What is honorable and right? Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. When we talk shallow, that's not love. Love looks to encourage and bless other people, to bless their their spirituality, to build up their faith and their love. And then he gives us one more word, and it's the word coarse joking or coarse jesting. And that word, it's one word in the Greek, and it literally means able to turn easily. Kind of an interesting word. He's talking about people who have a natural ability to take any conversation and move it from a good place to the gutter. They just have an ability to do that. It's their gift, you know? And we've probably all been in situations where someone's done it, or maybe we've done it. Maybe you've been in a conversation and things are cruising along and all of a sudden somebody takes a left turn, you know, and suddenly instead of moving up, you realize, uh uh-oh, you ever been there? And you're just kind of, we're moving towards the gutter. We're moving towards the gutter. The joke's going towards the gutter. I know where it's going. What do I do? Do I laugh? You know, to be polite, do I do nothing? Do I do this? What do I do? Do I walk away? Do I pull up my Bible and smack them over the head? Um, You know, what do you do? What do you do when you're the one talking and suddenly you get those looks from people and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, and you know, do I finish the joke? Or do I say, you know what, let time out. Sorry. We're headed toward the gutter here and I was really hoping to stay on the sidewalk. So, you know, what do you do in those situations? I think what he says is you realize, you know, stop and think about what you're saying and ask yourself this question. Is the thing I'm about to say going to be loving or is it going to be something else? Warren Wiersbe says this, there's two signs of character in a person's life. 
what makes a person laugh and what makes a person cry. In Colossians 4, 6, it says this, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you'll know how you should respond to each person. I love this. He says, when you're talking with people, just imagine you have an imaginary salt shaker full of grace, right? What does grace mean? Grace means where you talk about the good things God has done, the ways God has blessed you, um, things about God that you appreciate, answers to prayer. And so he says, when you're talking with people, just have that salt shaker right there. And you be thinking, as we're talking, I wonder how I can just, you know, add a little grace to this conversation. That's how you love people. That's a wonderful thing to do. So let me ask you this question. Where do your conversations take people? Good places or to the gutter? So here's Paul and he's talking about these things. Here are some problems. Here are six things to be aware of in the church. Sexual immorality, not a hint of it. Impurity, you don't want that. Greed, you don't want that going on in your church. You don't even want a hint of it. Obscenity, you know, uh, just silly talk course jesting. So now what do you do about all this? Here's the great thing in this passage. Six, six problems, okay? Uh, One solution. That's what I love about this passage. Six problems, one solution. What's the solution? Paul says very clearly this. He says at the bottom, he says, but rather, what's the word there? Thanksgiving. Paul says, believe it or not, there's one very simple solution to all of these things. The antidote to all of this. Now you might expect Paul to say, throw out your computer Unplug from the internet, you know, cancel your cable TV, just avoid the opposite sex altogether, you know, uh, join a monastery somewhere, you know, whatever you got to do. Instead, he goes, look, come on, let's be real. There's no way that you can really live the Christian life doing that stuff and avoiding that stuff. There's a better solution, a way to move beyond it. Be thankful. Now, I thought that was pretty interesting because I'll have to be honest, I've never thought of being thankful as a solution to pornography or, or, or extramarital sex. But Paul says, well, think about it for a minute. Think about how that could be the solution. For instance, if you're thankful for the people in your life, here's one thing that I've learned in my life. When, when I have a problem with someone, when I'm upset with someone, when I don't understand someone, when there's some issue or go, something going on there, I find that usually the solution is I just need to get to know them better. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but I've noticed that. If I begin to pray for someone, if I begin to look for ways to appreciate someone, if I look for ways to see God in that person, when you really begin to pray for someone and look for ways to support someone and look for ways to honor God in that person, it gets pretty hard to think about using them. It it makes it difficult. Paul says we need to be thankful for the people in our life, to be thankful for the way God's made them, to be thankful for their value to God, that Christ was willing to die for them to see them as our Heavenly Father sees them. When we're really, truly thankful for the people around us and when we begin to pray for them, it makes it a lot more difficult to have impure thoughts for them. It makes it more difficult to be talking with them and take a conversation into the gutter when you're looking at someone that you really, truly respect and care for. So he says, you know, start to be thankful. The people around you, are you really thankful for them? Or do you just view them as as something to be used? We need to be thankful for the people in our life. We need to be thankful for God's blessings in our life. See, I think one of the things that leads to greed is when we don't take the time to be grateful for what God's done for us. But when we stop and really, when we recognize the blessings in our life and we take time to thank God for those things in our life, it becomes easier to trust him for what we don't have in life, doesn't it? When we take time to think. I read a study the other day 
that said that uh, there was a study done across the country a couple years ago with university students who were required to do journaling in their classes. And uh, this group got these journals together, and what they noticed was 75% of what these students would write about on a daily basis was about their problems. And one of the conclusions was this. When all you think about is your problems, it kind of it gives you a certain mindset, doesn't it? Like when all you think about is a problem or when all you think about is what you don't have, you can start to see where greed and sexual immorality can become pretty huge. You think that's a solution. But when you spend time thinking about what you do have and how God has blessed you and how good God has been to you, it gets a little easier, doesn't it, to say, you know what, God, you've been good to me and you've blessed me, so I'm going to trust you with my needs, including my sexuality. I'm going to trust you with that. One of the reasons I think we really hurt ourselves is we don't stop to recognize God's blessings. We don't consider them how great they are, and we don't enjoy them. So we need to be thankful for the people in our life. We need to be thankful for God's blessings, and we need to learn to express that with our words. That's the last thing. When we learn to replace our obscene and meaningless words with words of praise, when we start to share what God has done, how God has blessed, how he's encouraged us, when we begin to share our thankfulness with our words, it makes it a little difficult to do those last three things. When we're sharing uh, in our conversations about how God has blessed us, it, there's no time to be obscene. And there's no time to be silly or foolish because you're sharing good things. And there's no chance to do some coarse, obscene joking and jesting because you're sharing about the good stuff that God has done for you. It's good for you. It's good for the other people. It helps build their faith and your faith, and it's a great use of words. Thankfulness is the antidote to all of these things. When we're thankful for people in our lives, it's hard to practice pornea toward them. When we're grateful for what God has done in our life, it's hard to be greedy. And when we're thankful with our words, it's hard to, it's hard to use obscenity. And it's, it makes it difficult. There's no time left to drag people into the gutter. Paul closes this section this way. He says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, no impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here's all he's saying. It sounds like a threat. <laughs> but really, he's just trying to draw a logical conclusion. He's saying this. Listen, this is the kind of stuff that, that separates people from God. Why would you want to go back to that? Why would Jesus had to go to the cross to die for this stuff? Why would you want to be forgiven and go back to that gutter? He's like, that's crazy. So just remember where you came from. And remember how completely illogical it would be to go back there. And why would you want to do, why would you want to do that anyways? Right? God has given us the ability to not only be loved, but to be loved. Let's pray.